Just on a note of lightheartedness, we're going to actually be in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we're going to look at success, guard your heart. Now, you know, sometimes the whole success thing uh, in American culture is based on your house, how big your house is, how many square feet, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I'm in the process of selling a house in Yorba Linda, and uh, I just want to tell you my candid experience. So first of all, it's a matter of perspective. Um, this is what I think, of, this is not my house, but, uh, but this is how your house is seen by, by yourself. But then, here's what happens next. This is what your buyer sees your house to look like. And then the problem is after that is the house as seen by your lender. Um, so you can never qualify for the loan, or they can't. And then that's not a problem. Then your appraiser sees it this way. And then lastly, the county tax assessor sees it this way. <laughs> so however you want to define your success, it's a matter of perspective this morning, isn't it? And today, we're going to look at David's life again in chapter 18. He has great success in defeating Goliath that propelled him instantly into the limelight. And with all this media hype, we think David's somewhere between 18 to 20 years old how is David's victory going to affect him? Is it going to go to his head? Uh, because what we find out is, you know, there are some predictable consequences when you are successful for God spiritually. And in fact, we want to know how he handles the heat because I believe that when you are successful, there's always a trial after the triumph. And how is David going to handle it? And I think you're going to find in this chapter that your true character, David's true character is revealed not how you just handle triumphs, but how do you handle tragedies as well. And so, how do you handle success as it comes along the way for us? I think there are seven principles we're going to get out of the Scriptures today. Let's look at the first set of Scriptures. We'll start in verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul let him, uh, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, also in the sight of Saul's servants. So first principle is popularity, power, and promotions often follow a successful triumph, whether it's spiritually or even just in, in the human realm. And you see that four things happen to David in these first few verses. First of all, he stays in the palace. You go back to verse 2, he's now going to be a full-time employee in the palace. No more taking care of the sheep. And previously, he was kind of uh, a temporary as-needed employee. Secondly, we find out in verse 4, Three and four, he becomes best friends with Jonathan. Now, that's going to be an interesting dilemma for David because Jonathan is who? He is Saul's son. Who should be the next king of Israel? Jonathan. He's not going to be the next king of Israel because we already know from the previ a couple previous chapters that David's being anointed to replace Saul, but they become best friends even though he's the king. Thirdly, we see that he has success in battle. In fact, the kind of the, the end game is that everything he does uh, turns positive. He's promoted. It says there in verse 5, he's set over the men of war. We're going to look at what that means in a, in a bit. Write down this verse, Psalm 119, verses 97 to 101. It describes David's time period in his life. It says that he behaved himself more wisely than all the other commanders. And then an interesting phrase, look at the end of verse 5, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. In other words, he endears himself to Saul's clan as well. Sometimes when a new kid comes on the block, uh, existing leadership kind of is not so sure about 
whether or not this new kid's going to work out so well. But even the servants in the palace liked David, and they could have been very easily that he so quickly promoted over some of them. Yeah, they're saying, hey, he's, he's one of us. Now, the second thing that happens within uh, this promotion piece here is that this popular opinion creates kind of a one-sided riff with, uh, between David and Saul. David's kind of unbeknownst that. Look at what happens in verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet, get this, who are they here to meet? To meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, the women are coming out to meet Saul, but he doesn't see it that way, right? He, the, he thinks they're praising David. In fact, praising David is kind of a secondary thing here. But Saul, by this time, is so insecure, and he's so jealous of this song. Now, in Hebrew poetry, this is a little, little Hebrew uh, kind of Bible study here, a thousand and ten thousand was like saying six or half dozen of another. It, it, those are equivalents. It's not trying to say one's better than the other. But Saul so misreads this. David's not trying to insult him. The women aren't trying to insult him. But he sees it as a total personal affront. But I think the, the summary of this section, if you go down to verses 14 and 15, we see that David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. We're going to come back to that phrase in just a moment. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. And so with this promotion is a, a two-edged sword. And we're going to see that David's key to success is that the Lord's with him. The, the key to Saul's demise is that he's jealous and the spirit has left him. And we'll, we'll see that again. So my question to you is when things go well for you, how do you handle success? You know, a good leader, when things look well, uh, go, goes well for them, doesn't look in the mirror and say, yeah, look what I've done. They look backwards and, and look at all the people that have supported them. Oftentimes, a leader who thinks it's all about him looks in the mirror and says, yeah, that's because of me. Yep, I can handle this. I'm the man. And I think as you think about leadership, as you think about success in your own life, who do you give credit to? And we're going we're gonna to come back to that idea in just a moment. Second thing that happens to David is that others will be jealous of your success. If you are spiritually successful or on the human front, uh, if you're successful, there's going to be some issues. Look what happens in verse 8. Then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him, the one about the thousand versus ten thousand. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. And the idea is only thousands. Now what more can he have but the, the kingdom? In other words, what else can this kid take from me? Does he want the kingdom? Now, he doesn't know yet that David's been anointed the next king of Israel. Do you know that David's anointed? We saw that in chapter 16 a year ago. <laughs> and it's going to be 14 years before he actually comes to the throne. So it's a long waiting game. And he looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Look at verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while... By the way, young people see the word rave and have a different interpretation of that word. This is, a, this is like lunatic anger, not party rave. Um, you're all way too old to get that, apparently. <laughs> Come on, work with me here. Um, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, and he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand. Verse 11, Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence 
twice. And so David's also uh, quick afoot and kind of dodges the bullet, literally. So every attempt to minimize David is now a full frontal assault by Saul. From this point forward, David uh, is Saul's enemy continually. So imagine 14 years now of just running for your life. On one hand, he's being chased by Saul. At the same time, he's chasing the Philistines. and He's gaining favor with the army, uh, but he's lost favor with the king. And so even though his life's protected, it's like he's fighting uh, two wars at the same time, one to protect himself against uh, Saul and another against the Philistines that he continually has to take on. And so the spear is in Saul's hand, the harp is in David's hand, and Saul is desperately wanting him to be gone and does anything he can to minimize, degrade, and detest David. Now, David has all this success. And we should know that spiritually, James 1 says, consider all, jo- consider all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. So I want to suggest to you that when people are jealous of you, spiritually or any other way, that this insecurity that drives people, there are predictable steps. And if you've ever been wor- worked with someone who's insecure and you are now the problem child. I can tell you these next steps, you're going to see them laid out in the text. These are the same steps that you're going to be treated like oftentimes when you're going through a situation with somebody else who's jealous of your accomplishments. Now, you say, man, talking about that in church, isn't that kind of like, no, this is real life. Have you ever been in a job where you did well and somebody got jealous of you? Just, just do my heart some good. Just raise your hand if you've ever been in a place where someone was jealous of your accomplishments. Look around. So this is practical stuff because this, how are you going to deal with that? Well, let's see what the text tells us. First of all, there will be initial public support. Initial public support. Support. We sat in verse 2 and verse 5. Verse 2, Saul kept David with him and Saul gave him a high rank. Secondly, then there'll be the anger and jealousy phase. Verses 8 and 9. Saul was angry. He looked at David with suspicion. He is so insecure, as we've said already. He's obsessed by it. He's consumed by it. And here's what's interesting. Who should the king of Israel be concerned about? Two things. Who should he be concerned about? He should be concerned about what God Almighty thinks and the ultimate welfare of his people. Is that what Saul's agenda is right now in his life? Uh Uh-uh. His agenda is bring David down, protect himself, gather in the troops, so so to speak, and he sees that maybe David's even a threat to the the throne. Uh, Thirdly, we see physical violence in verses 10 through 11. And we've already looked at that verse where he tried to pin him with the the javelin. Now, this is a problematic passage for some in the Scriptures because this evil spirit thing, right? How can someone... What's this evil spirit, this raging, this prophesying? This this is something that that I think I'll, I'll talk to in the next point here. But just say this much is that Saul has some kind of, I believe, a mental illness that's manifested in what I think is potentially some demonic behavior that's influencing him. And I don't believe that Christians, by the way, can be possessed, but I do believe that you can be oppressed, and especially when you walk away from God's purposes for your life, you're a candidate for having a lot of confusion and chaos in your life. Well, that's exactly what happens next. Look at verse 12. Fear and paranoia set in. And again, I'm just describing this is what's going to happen to the person that's oftentimes, you know, kind of attacking, accusing you, and why they act so bizarrely. So now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. 
So this brings up an interesting idea. How does the Spirit of God work in the Old Testament as He does versus the New Testament? We know we, as believers, when you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. We know that from Acts 2 on, the day of Pentecost, you receive the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come on people for a time. You see that in Saul's life. You see that in Gideon's life. But it's not a permanent residence within them. And so the Spirit has been removed from Saul's uh, being, uh, even though David gets the promotions, he thinks that promotions will get him out of the palace, somehow move those, remove those feelings of paranoia, out of sight, out of mind. And, but ironically, the more success David has being outside the palace, the more paranoid uh, Saul becomes. And Saul's afraid. I don't know if he recognizes that David's with him, but he knows there's something special about this kid. He's killed Goliath. Everything he touches turns to gold. And so he's intimidated. And I think that's what happens with us in, in real world. When people get intimidated with your life, whether it's because of your spiritual character or because you just are a hard worker and you do a good job, the natural reaction of, of a self-serving team is to want to remove the leader. You know, take that other guy down. It's, it's eat or be eaten. And so we see this with Saul. And so this is the last time, by the way, that, that Saul's ever going to seek David out. And so he, now he kind of moves in this relentless circle of stalking him, but never initiating talking with him. In fact, you're going to see uh, future uh, conversations are not with Saul and David. It's between David and one of Saul's generals or servants. And, you know, there's a couple, verse 12 is afraid, word afraid, and then this awesome fearfulness in verse 15. You see this progressive paranoia setting in. Next, you'll see broken promises that you don't get that promotion uh, they take away the pay raise, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, only be valiant and fight the Lord's battles. Now, what was one of the, the, the fringe benefits of killing Goliath? What was David supposed to get out of the deal besides not paying taxes? What was the, one of the other big deals? He was supposed to get a, a wife out of the deal, right? Now, is Saul just forgetful? He's already pros, promised him a wife. In fact, he earned that in 1 Samuel 17, 25, and now he's asking him to risk his life a second time and a third time and on and on. And I don't think he has a short memory. I think he's just manipulative and lying. And, and he's just, he's not a guy that's going to keep his word. And in fact, he'd broken that promise. And now he wants to make the getting of life conditional on if he does this. And you can read in the text here, there's all kinds of things he's got to do to the Philistines and kill people, et cetera, et cetera. Verse 21, the next stage is treachery. And he gives him this wife, and, but for the purpose that she may become a snare to him, and the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So he's thinking, let's put David in the line of fire in the battle. He'll, he'll, we'll give him more responsibilities, but maybe he'll get knocked off in battle. And so Michael was the one uh, that, that he ended up marrying. His first wife gets given to another man. This treachery was on two fronts. He's trying to get, get him killed by the Philistines, and David thinks that maybe a woman will kind of mess with him and instare him through the marriage to his daughter. Uh, and it's interesting because for, for David, he really did love Michael. Even though the first Merib wasn't given to him, um, in fact, her kids all die. In fact, the last remaining heir of that marriage to um, this other man is Mephibosheth. Say that several times, Beth. Mephibosheth. And that's a whole nother story. If we had time, what a great story of God's grace in Mephibosheth. If you've never read that, check that out later. The last stage of this kind of uh, descent into just disgusting jealousy that Saul has is flattery. And so he kind of 
Tell, he talks to his servants, tell them that the king's pleased with you and orders attendants say how pleased he is. And, and the bottom line is when people are kissing up to you, friends, watch out. Watch out. One of the things that's very interesting is anytime in churches when a new pastor comes, you know. I got advice a long time ago. When you come to a new church, uh, this little phrase, be careful who meets you at the plane. In other words, some of the people who are your greatest supporters come sometimes are your strongest, you know, kind of critics uh, later on. And so be careful about flattery if people are kind of going down that path with you as well. So that's kind of what happens in, uh, in the steps here. And we see that when people are jealous, they do some crazy stuff. But here's the point. If you're going to be spiritually successful, point number three according to our text, is that trials almost always follow triumphs. Almost always. Verse 13, Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And when Saul, verse 15, saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. He dreaded him. So this is David's roller coaster life. Great success, publicly admired, but... You can expect that if you have a spiritual victory, you're going to have a trial. If you have a triumph, there's going to be a tragedy. I'm, I alluded to it last week. Men who make decisions at a men's retreat can expect to have a trial the next week and the next month because your faith is going to be tested. You can't just say this and not expect that to come with it. James 1 says to expect those kind of trials. Think about how many times, let's think out loud together, how many times in the scriptures someone has a great victory and then it all goes to pieces. Elijah takes out who? The prophets of Baal and then what happens to him? He's all depressed. By the way, it's all right to talk today. I really, it's a, you know, just give me some feedback. Think you're in, you know, a church in the south where people actually talk, all right? So Elijah has victory over the prophets of Baal, then he's depressed. Joseph Goes from a promotion, well, he goes up and down from the pits to a promotion, back into prison. I mean, his life is worse than the stock market. I mean, it's just up and down, right? Uh, how about Jesus? From Palm Sunday to Good Friday. In six days, he goes from being praised to crucified. And so we see that pattern in Scripture. Here's something that maybe you've never thought about. Have you ever thought that sometimes you may inadvertently sabotage your own spiritual journey because as you know Scripture, with great spiritual victory, the bullseye goes on your back? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? That as you stand for God... Don't expect that you go to the easy chair and just sit with the spiritual remote going, yep, God, do this. Yep, now do that. Yep, we're going with that. Glad you're helping me here, God. I got this one. Not so sure about that. I think when you stand for God and you say, thus saith the Lord, I'm going to mark a line in the sand. I'm going to do this. I don't want you to be deceived and think, oh, everything's just going to be hunky-dory. Because one of the issues you're going to have is how come everything is going better for everybody else? In fact, David's felt that. If you want to know, if you ever feel bad because you think the wicked are winning and the good guys are losing, you've got to check out Psalm 73. Because the natural 
tendency is to look at the good things that are happening to everybody else and say, how come it's not happening for me? And what I'd like to suggest is that in the crucible of the Christian life, as you work out what God's doing through the good times and the bad times, through the mountaintops and through the valleys, that I believe that you're going to find that God is more dear and more near to you in the depths of your despair than in the mountaintops of your highest uh, highs in your life. See, when you, things are going well and you're riding high, I think it's pretty easy to kind of hurt like, God, yeah, I'll get back to you when I'm in trouble. I'll check in with you after that. And all of a sudden, God's just somebody you check in when you need something. When you're in the pit, when you're at the bottom of whatever that experience is, that's when God's real. That's when your heart is broken and vulnerable and God can make it pliable and he can use you in ways that he can't use you when you're kind of reading your own press reports. And so critics will come from all directions and your life will be an intimidation. And so he puts him over a thousand people and what he essentially did, it was like sending him to Siberia. Get out there, go fight. He's promoted to a general and he's leading victory over victory, but Saul's plan backfires because David is so successful. He never loses. He's like a UFC fighting champion that never, ever, ever loses. And so what trial in your life right now might be a direct result of serving God faithfully? And before you whine about it, maybe you ought to be thanking God. Well, thank you, God, for that experience. Some of you are caring for aging parents right now. You say, what does that have to do with David? I'm thinking of my wife right now. She is just bone tired for a month. She spent almost every other day clearing out a house of her father's that he, he can no longer live there. And it's easy to get a bad attitude about that. And I got to tell you, she has such a good attitude, such a sweet, winsome spirit. Her dad was not close to her. They, they divorced when she was three years old. And I got to tell you, if she was a lesser woman, she'd be complaining about, this is not fair, life's not, why am I have to do all this? I haven't heard a word of that from her mouth. Not a word. She gets on a plane today to fly to Houston and give her brother a, a week of respite to care for him. See, when you are a godly person that thinks according to godly perspectives, then you realize that the tragedy and trials in your life that you're experiencing is a part of the everyday Christian experience. Now, if you're new to the faith, let me just hang on here and go, wait, 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 time out, time out. I signed up for that John 10, 10 thing. I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And with that, I'll throw in some Ginsu knives. You know, that, we kind of give this easy believism view of Christianity. Christianity isn't easy when you try to live it in your own power, in your own efforts. You want to talk? Look at these two guys. They've been serving for 23 years. It is not easy. They raise up leaders and they die. They get health problems. They have heart issues. They're fighting all kinds of fronts. And we know that that battle is won in the Lord, but in His timing. And so, maybe 
you got to think about blessing instead of blaming during this trial triumph season of your life. Fourthly, fourth principle, when you're successful, God's presence was the key to David's success, verses 14 to 16, and then we see it again in verses 28 and 29. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. For the Lord was with him. Not because David was so smart, because David was so cool, because David said all the right things. Uh Uh-uh. The Lord was with him. God's hand was on David. He had some natural abilities, but God's hand was on David. Write this down. A leader is a person with a magnet in his heart and a compass in his head. He knew exactly where he was headed because his heart was in God's hands. Remember, he's a man after God's own heart. Now, he wasn't a perfect leader. We know that later in life. He really messed up. Not for this series at this point, though. That's for another day. So be careful you don't buy into the world's model of success. What is that? Jeremiah 9.23. Write that verse down. Jeremiah 9.23 is the world's model of success. Let me read it to you. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. Rather, let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Who knew God better than anybody in the Old Testament? I think it's David. Look at 150 Psalms he writes about his experience with the living God. And so, what are the three things the world says are important? Wise men, write the word brains. Strong men, write the word brawn. And for you ladies, beauty. All right, brawn or beauty. And, or the rich man, bucks. Brains, brawn and beauty, bucks. Those aren't the things that are, make you successful. I know the world's currency is, is seen in those terms. And, you know, I would like to think that I, I, can, I can think through things. And, you know, I'd like to be getting stronger and I'd like to have a little more money. But that's not the standard by which I want to evaluate my life. There's only two things that are, two things are going to last for eternity, friends. The Word of God and people. And I want my life to count. And th- those are the, the kind of the, the railings of my life. I want to be involved in God's Word. I want to be involved with His people. And so, God had already told uh, through Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7 what's most important to him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at it on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. Seven previous brothers. Nope, 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 nope. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God's got your back, friends. God has your back. He's what's going to prosper you. David's a spiritual leader. So you ask, what if I'm not very successful? What if I'm broke? What if I don't have a great job? What if my, life, my wife leaves me? What if my kids are rebellious? There's a lot of what ifs, right? There are no guarantees. But I do know this. I'm going to choose to trust God and follow him with all of my heart, regardless of the roller coaster of the experiences that I have in life. Because I know they're not all going to be mountaintops. i got to just live with the fact there are going to be some valleys. And when I'm in that valley, I'm not going to say, God, where are you? I'm going to say, God, thank you. God, thank you for this experience because I'm needing to depend on you more now than ever. And if I'm sitting on some great experience like, you know, the great experiences in the last couple of years are, are the, these little dudes on the back of my phone, Right? 
Every grandparent loves spending time with grandkids. Puts a smile on your face no matter what they do. That's a blessed time. So whether I'm getting to hang out with my grandkids or if someone's coming to faith in Christ or I'm in the middle of a crisis that I can't solve, I'm going to realize that God's got my back. He's the one who prospers me. And so everyone gives a gift to the anointed King David. Jonathan gives his loyalty. The women of Israel give him their praise. And Saul gives him his daughter in marriage. Pretty good deal. Verses 28 and 29, here are the results. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. So he's forced to honor the promise. He's more afraid of David. And David is Saul's natural enemy for the rest of his life. Write this one down. Ability may get you to the top, but it takes character to keep you there. Ability might get you to the top, but it takes character to keep you there. And I believe that that character is ultimately a, a faith in Jesus Christ that's rooted in your relationship to Him. Number five, humility is the cornerstone of godly character. If you're going to be successful, humility is part of the package. I hope you see that in verse 17. Then Saul said, David, here's my older daughter, Merib. This is the girl he should have been marrying. I will give her to, for her to you for a wife. Only be valiant and fight for the Lord's battles. Now, we've already covered this. We see that he's trying to set him up, that the Lord's hands on David, but Saul thinks he can get him killed, etc., etc. But verse 19, by the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Melophite, for a wife. He's not going to raise a hand against David. He'll let the Philistines do it. And I wonder, I just wonder, David saw the, the sham in all this. I wonder if this is the seed thought in his mind many, many years later when he puts Uriah out on the front lines to possibly get killed to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. That's one of those questions. We'll get to Information Central in heaven and we'll say, hey, hey, want to know about this. Were you thinking about this back then? Saul tried to do it to you and you did it to Uriah? We don't know. We don't know. And so it's a deliberate attempt on Saul's part to embarrass David because when you get married back in those days, you got to provide a what? A dowry. All right? It, that hasn't changed. If you're the father of the groom, you're paying the dowry. Somehow the grooms get out of it and the father of the bride pays that price. But the bottom line is he's trying to embarrass him because David doesn't have the money to marry the king's daughter. So he's got to earn it through all these exploits with the Philistines. But look at how humble David is in verse 18. He says, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, but that I should be a son-in-law to the king? If you could say it with a Jewish accent, you'd see how powerful that is. Who am I that I could be? See, I think I went Italian there. I'm not sure. Anyway, the bottom line is that he's very humble. He's very humble and dependent, right? Let me give you three verses on pride. Just write these references down. James 4, 6. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart. Romans 12, 3, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly. So the result is Saul tries to trick him, gives him to Adriel. I've already told you this. Her five sons are all killed eventually. You can check that out in 2 Samuel chapter 1. But David doesn't even get mad. He's set up to be the fool. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't get demanding. He doesn't demand his rights. He's just a humble servant. And he's calm, even though he's lied to. Saul, and uh, he was lied to by Saul about his wife. 
Which, by the way, another interesting parallel with Jacob, right? Kind of gets the switcheroo, gets Leah instead of Rachel. If you don't know that passage, check it out. It's an interesting parallel to this passage. So, question is, what do you do? When you get thrown a curveball, what do you do? When, when you're expecting this and this doesn't happen, you're going to go pout? You're going to go suck your thumb in the corner? You're going to go, wah, wah, wah. God's not fair. Are we going to do that? Now, I don't want to make, okay, we understand, triumph trial. But what I want to say to you is that David, because of his humility, realizes, hey, I'm just blessed. I'm just blessed to be a part of this whole deal. That is so awesome. When you're around somebody who's humble like that, they're not talking about themselves. Let me tell you, one of the things I know about humble people, they ask a ton of questions about you. You can hardly get a word in edgewise because they're asking you all these, tell me about your family. How about your kids? Tell me what you do. What do you love about in life? And they just pepper you with questions and you realize that 20 minutes later, you haven't asked a thing about them. And they draw you in like a magnet. Because that humility is other person-centered. And that's who David is. And so, by the way, Saul is not the brightest bulb. He's now set David up to be the next king because he's now marrying into the royal family. I don't know what he was thinking. He's now got the legal heir of the throne, not only the spiritual heir through the anointing, through God himself. And so I'd say the summary to this humility piece is that leadership is something you are. Leadership is more about who you are than what you do. And that describes David. Six, obeying God involves risk. It involves risk. Then the commanders, verse 30, the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle as often as they went out. And David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So his name was highly esteemed. There's a, there's a battle that's kind of glossed over that, that every single time He's putting his life on the line. It takes risk. He didn't play it safe. I love this quote. A ship in a harbor is safe, but that is not what ships were built for. I love that. A ship in a harbor is safe, but that's not what ships were built for, and that's not what David was built for, to play it safe. He took risks. He was successful. And I believe the Lord smiled down on him. In fact, we see that oftentimes. The chief captain of Abimelech's host admitted to Abraham back in his day, God is with thee, Genesis 21, 22. When Joseph was the house of Potiphar, he was told, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, Genesis 39, 3. You want to do a great study? Study that phrase, the Lord was with him. And look at how God deals with people when he is with him, when he's orchestrating the next steps. So I'd say to us, let's not get comfortable You've had some great spiritual victory. Let's not just rest on our laurels. What is it that God's calling you to do next? What's your next big project? Now, here's the sad thing. Some of you are going, what project? Uh, What victory? Uh, What game are you talking about? I'm saying get in the game. Pick one. Pick an area where God can use you. And how is it that God's going to use you? But I don't have any gifts. You've got gifts. But I'm just a... Don't... a but or a woulda, shoulda, God can use you. You go, really? Yeah, really. Really, he can. And so David's name becomes well-known. And it's just interesting. When your name's well-known, what would you do? By the way, TMZ kind of ruins the world. They're the camera, you know, following everybody, right? I love, if I, if I would have prepared well, I would have had Rob play this clip. There's this great clip right now that uh, 
Simon Cowell in America's Got Talent asked this little girl who can sing like crazy. Uh, you're kind of channeling, uh, who was it, Rob? Shirley Temple inside of you. And this little girl, 10 years old, in front of that whole audience says, well, no, but I got Jesus inside of me. And I loved it. Howard Stern was speechless. You know, that's the kind of people that God uses, giving God the credit. Then lastly, trust God knowing that he'll do battle with your enemies. And that the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with his sword and your spirit, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Seven great principles to understand how success works in our lives. They may not all apply to you personally, but I can guarantee you that as you look at your life, as you stand out for God, as you step up to the challenge, these are the kinds of things we need to be aware of. So we see that David didn't fight back, didn't become cynical, didn't become judgmental. And as Chad comes and we kind of close this up here, I want you to think about what David was doing during this time in his life. Because as we look at the heart of a king, he's in preparation now for 14 years. He's in the waiting room. God's refining his character. He's building his reputation. And so David has great character. He's got great lessons that he's going to teach us. He is a man out after God's own heart. He's not perfect, but I'll tell you, he's quite an example in contrast to Saul's life. So I want to ask you very simply, what life do you want to lead today? No one wants to pick Saul because we see how the story ends, but I hope that you're inspired as we look at David. He's the kind of guy that you can get behind. He's the kind of guy that as you look at his life, you say, God, may I have a heart the beats after the things that your heart beats after. I've given you some questions at the end of your notes here. I'd like you to spend some time this week just looking at the text, rereading it, asking God to teach you what is it that you want me to learn this week. You know, we can, we can give a lot of content. We, we can give you good sermons. We can put it all out there. But in the end, as one of your pastors, I want you to just get the big picture today. God's the one who's going to give you victory. You don't have to fight in the power of your own physical skills. And secondly, if you're in one of these valleys because you've had some victories, don't despair. Don't give up. Don't get mad at God because I believe right now in that valley God's going to use it to refine you in ways you have no idea how he's going to change your life. Amen? Would you bow your heads? Some of you are feeling great today. You're going, wow, God is at work. I'm so glad to be a part of his team. But others of you are in the valley after the triumph, and you're in that kind of tragedy phase of this sequence. The triumph seems distant. And today, you just need a little extra dose of encouragement that God is with you. He's not leaving you. He's going to stand by you in this, in this trial. And if you're that person today, that's the person I want to see eye to eye just for a moment. Okay. Let's look eye to eye. Okay. Anybody else? Anybody else? Okay. Nod at me. Okay. All right. Lord, would you take these folks that 
are really in the, in the valley experience right now and, and lift them up, raise their spirits. Lord, we know that ultimately you're the one who has their back, that you're the one who prospered David and, and you will prosper them, that you will care for them through the good times and the bad times. And thank you for what we're learning about David. May we not just intellectualize it, but live it, experience it, breathe it in, and give it back to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Heavenly Father, that is so true. You are our defense, and we need you. And so we go with that purposefulness today as we seek to make an impact on everybody we come in contact with. In Jesus' name, amen.